you know, unfortunately, we can't put people on an existential pump uh, like we can put them on a morphine pump or other pumps. And if you look at international data, if you look at, you know, places where medical assistance in dying has been legal for some period of time, it seems as though, at least in my reading of the data, that it's not physical pain that makes most people want to end their life. It is the loss of control. It is the, the unending fear of the, one's own dem demise. And it's, it's seeing loved ones suffer as you suffer. So I think it's not, we're not talking so much about physical symptoms as symptoms that are notoriously difficult for medicine, traditional Western medicine to deal with. Welcome back to the Subcut Podcast, the medical-ish podcast where we talk about things that will be relevant for high school students, medical students, doctors, anyone that's interested in healthcare. Uh, I'm your host today, Dr. Justin. I used to be a doctor and we don't have other co-hosts today, uh, but we are on Zoom with our favorite guests, my name is Nick Sheckard and uh, one of the co-hosts of the I Am Reasoning podcast. And I'm Art Nahill. Another co-host of the I Am Reasoning <laughs> podcast. Uh, so if you haven't um, already, you can check out that episode that we did with him before. But uh, we're talking about end of life, uh, assisted dying, assisted suicide, euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia. Uh, and this is very relevant at the moment in New Zealand because of the End of Life Act, which uh, End of Life Bill, which is going through a public referendum at the moment. And so there's a lot of conversation that's being had about that. But also, I think importantly, from looking at the people around me, the especially non-medical people around me, there is a lot of not discussion happening about some points that I think should be talked about. And um, I think this is something that I, will be important to address and really bring in a balanced medical perspective on that. So um, first of all, I think it would be good just for each of us to talk about where our general perspective is with regards to just overall the concept of euthanasia before we really jump into each of the intricate sort of reasons why. Um, Art, I guess, if you want to start. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, I was thinking as you were saying that intro, Justin, I'm not sure how balanced uh, a view that you're going to get with uh, Nick and myself here, but um, I am uh, strongly in favor of allowing medical assistance in dying, uh, in part because I think that our remit for being physicians is really, it's not to cure disease or to keep people alive, but really it is to alleviate suffering. And um, I think that this bill and bills like it really do fit in nicely, uh, and I don't think contradict at all uh, what we're meant to be doing as physicians. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm strongly in favor of it and have been for quite a long time. And Nick, what about you? Yeah, well, I mean, in, in terms of stating my position, it's um, I'm also strongly in favor of it. Um, I guess the only thing, and I'm sure that we'll get into this a little bit more, but the only thing that I would add to uh, Art's comment is that to a large extent, I think we already do this work and we call it something else and we think about it in slightly different ways. Um, right. It's not as, it's not explicit, obviously, and we're not, it's not with the same intention, but 
you know, the, 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 ultimately the differences between practically speaking what will happen if it passes and it comes into existence and what we sometimes end up doing in hospital now is there's a blurry line there. Right. In fact, actually, you know what, that might be a good um, segue into some of the deeper topics, just talking a little bit about that. So, Nick, are you talking a bit about sort of the idea of um, basically that sort of palliative transition, but also when you know that what's really in the best interest of this person is to kind of pass away with as much dignity as possible. And so we are kind of just doing things that we know is going to accelerate this person's death. However, uh, it's for the sake of improve, improving whatever quality of life they have available. Is that sort of what you're talking about or, or something different? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you're, I think we're talking about the same thing. I think I would state it slightly differently because um, I don't, you know, and, and maybe I'm just uninformed about this, but I don't know that there's any specific intervention that I engage in in the attempt to palliate my terminal patients, if you wish, that actually accelerates their death. So it's impossible to have the counterfactual to know what would have happened had I not given this drug or this much of this drug. My only purpose in these uh, situations is, as Art mentioned, to alleviate suffering, to prevent as much as possible the distress and the anguish and the pain. And I will use whatever means I have at my disposal to accomplish that. And there is a understanding and I guess a theory that, yes, you could end up using enough medications to, for that purpose that breathing is slower than usual. And, but it's really hard to know at what point the culprit of the ultimate demise is the disease itself that was getting to that fever pitch or what we were doing to try and alleviate the distress. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, opponents of the bill and opponents of medical assistance in dying, I think, try to portray this as this separate entity, this point that you get to, and then you cross some inexplicable, mysterious chasm, and you come to medical assistance in dying. But I see this really as just a natural end of a spectrum of things that we offer people as they approach the end of life. Um, and so I, I completely agree with Nick that there's a very, very blurry line between what we have now, which is, you know, no medical assistance in dying, and what we frequently do is we frequently give people as, enough, as much sort of morphine as they need to alleviate their suffering. And I'm sure that in some cases, it, cases it hastens their demise. Mm. So um, I don't think that this is really a huge leap from what it is that we currently do. At least in a practical sense. In a practical, in a practical sense, sense absolutely. yeah. In a, in a legal sense, absolutely, there's a, there is a big leap. But I think practically speaking, it's but, a part of a, of a spectrum and part of a continuum. But, but if, if I can just add to that, we are talking, when we're, we're talking about this blurry line and how practically it's not that different, we're, we are talking about a very specific kind of circumstance and we can, we can all envision it because we've been there. It's the, uh, it's the inpatient. It's the patient that has ended up under our care in the hospital. They've really reached the end of that line. And in fact, often the reason that they are with us in the hospital is because 
their pain can no longer be managed adequately without constant attention and that intensity of, of the attention. Mm. There, are, there is a different subset of patients. There's, there's many different subsets of patients, but, and we can talk a little bit more if you want about my, my one experience that I've had with this in a more deliberate way, uh, but a different subset of patients that is not right at the end of the line. They are not moribund and about to pass away, you know, were it not for the fluid that we keep, keep on giving them, et cetera. They are, it's a very peaceful and a controlled circumstance where they have all their wits about them and they make a decision possibly weeks, possibly months before the fated day, because no one knows when that's going to happen, where they say, my pain is too much. My suffering is too much. What is the point of living out, you know, the next several weeks under these circumstances? Let me take some control. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know the details of their psychology there, but uh, that is, that's another subset of patients where what you're doing in medical assistance and dying is, a, is much more unnatural compared to what we were just talking about, yeah. where there's, there's almost no choice but to assist them you know, down to the end. This situation that I'm talking about is you know, they're possibly very still weeks or days away from being in that situation, and you're just not even allowing that to, to transpire. Mm. And I think for um, people that aren't so medically informed about this, I think it's worth going on a little bit of an explanation around this concept that we have of natural history of a disease, where if you catch, for example, if you're a young, fit, healthy person, you get the, you know, a common cold or something, you know, the natural history of that is for you to have some symptoms, you'll be sniffly, sneezing, coughing, and then weeks you know, later, you will be fine, it will resolve itself. So the natural history can be said to resolve and some other conditions, the natural history, maybe for example, if you, um, appendicitis would be a great example, super, super common, the natural history of appendicitis is that you'd probably just die or something, um, and that would have killed you years and years ago. And so what medicine does is it actually deviates from the natural history for a lot of diseases, but there are some patients where no matter what you're intervening, the natural history cannot be averted and that person will lead to death and it's simply a matter of how they die maybe exactly when they die and how they're feeling throughout that entire process. So this conversation we're having is really restricted to those specific um, patients, just so people aren't getting the wrong idea and thinking that when they go into hospital, we're thinking, oh, you know, if you die, so what? Um, it's not that. Yeah, uh, or, that or also not get the wrong idea that, you know, to avoid two days of appendicitis, the natural history, we're just going to top you off while, <laughs> while, exactly. while you're suffering. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, so, and this, this bill is really, um, as it's constructed, really quite specific that whatever illness that you have mm -hmm. has to have a prognosis of six months or less. So, and it has to be agreed upon by, by at least two different doctors that more than likely you will be dead as a natural progression of the disease within six months. So, we're not talking about people with potentially curable illnesses or relatively minor illnesses. These are people who really are facing the end of life yeah. in, in, a fairly, uh, in a fairly immediate way. Now, the interesting point there, I think, about the prognosis is because that is one of the requirements that needs to be fulfilled. This person's prognosis, prognosis, by the way, meaning your, I guess, how, how we 
how long we think you're going to really live for. Um, the prognosis needs to be within six months. But the argument against that would be that, well, we all know that prognosis is really estimation and guesswork. My interpretation of that is that really, if there's anything on the fence, even close to the fence of six months, there's not a lot of people that will be confident enough to say that, oh yes, that it doesn't. I will be sort of thinking that we're looking at patients who they're probably gonna die within weeks to you know a couple months and they'll definitely you know, have died within six months. That's my interpretation of it, but is, is that any different for how you've, you're seeing it? Well, I think what we, I guess what, what people are nervous about in that, from that perspective, and, and I guess what we have to be careful about is once it's a law, then you know the, it's the six-month uh, threshold that that simply has to be met. But you're right. I mean, no one has the future in the in their minds. But I guess I would distinguish a complete guess because no one knows. Uh, with I would distinguish that from uh, actually having real data and real information about certain diseases and then and their natural history. And just to make the point that. The way that that data is often presented is, uh, you know, take something like pancreatic cancer, which is certainly going to be one of the diagnoses, which you know will will figure, you know, for example, in this in this um, practice. The way that they report uh, mortality is five-year mortality, for example. So they they might say, uh, you know, x not x percentage of these people will be uh, alive or dead within five years. They probably also have data for six months or three months. You know, the median survival at this stage of the disease, in other words, half of you will be alive after this and half of you will be alive before this might be three months. And some of that data is available. It doesn't mean that you know it for the one individual patient because there's always extremes and there's always variations around that mean or that median. But it's not complete guesswork. It's not just we're pulling it out of a hat. There's, there's actually a lot of data available about the average or median mortality for certain conditions. And so what would you say to the people who would look at that, you know, six month prognosis and think, oh, but what about those stories where, you know, the doctor said I've only got six months to live, but, um, you know, they ended up, you know, staying alive for two, three years after that, you know, the people that have heard those stories, what would you say to them? I would say perhaps that they watch too much television. Um, you know, those, those cases undoubtedly happen, but I think they are very, very rare. And, you know, by and large, we're going to be talking about people who have end-stage heart failure, people who have end-stage lung disease, people who have end-stage cancer. And yes, we, we don't have the capability to look at someone and clinically or biochemically assess with 100% certainty that they will be dead or alive in six months. But the reality is that we're making these kinds of assessments all the time. And I think by and large, we're reasonably good at it. And we're not forcing people to make a decision to end their own life or to be assisted in ending their life if they hold out hope that they will be one of the 10 million who lives you know, longer than you know, who were one of these miracle cases, you know, right. these are by and large will be people who are playing the odds. And if the odds are overwhelmingly against their survival, 
they will be the ones that we're talking about, not the ones who hold out hope. You know, they won't be forced to end their lives. Yeah, and they'll be balancing that risk of death versus life which, in whichever way they hold that hope against the suffering that they're experiencing in that moment. So yeah. is my suffering worth holding out for a 0.0001% chance that they're wrong about my prognosis? I mean, even if they're wrong, I mean, I can tell you that we're almost always wrong about the prognosis if we try to be too specific about the prognosis. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that it's just that balance between the risk or the hope versus the suffering. Mm. And um, you, you mentioned before, or both of you sort of mentioned before about how it's not really different in practice. It's not really different in practice. Now, one of the interesting counterpoints that I read about the bill was in, although it's not different in practice, the fact that it's accepted as the concept actually may have practical implications. And this was specifically regarding power care. And so the idea was that when you're entering into palliative care, palliative care typically historically, and I'm pretty sure internationally, is built on very strict ethical uh, sort of foundations. One of which often includes that they, they will not be euthanizing the, the patient. So one of the arguments was that by having euthanasia as a possibility, it fundamentally undermines the trust that the patient or the patient's family may have in power care as a service or organization or an institution. And I think the idea is that, you know, if you are sort of, uh, if you have an elderly you know, father or mother or something who's um, in the services and, and care of power care, and they're saying that they're doing their best to keep, this, uh, keep your mother or father as comfortable as possible, but you know that in the back of their head they're thinking, but if it gets too bad, we, we, will, we can euthanize. If that's, I think that's kind of where that idea is sort of coming from, is that it may undermine the sort of trust that they have in power care from a fundamental point of view, simply because the concept is accepted, which is not something that I had thought about before personally. Well, but Justin, these cases of medical assistance in dying have to be patient initiated. So, you know, in general, a palliative care physician or physicians caring for the patient aren't going to be euthanizing, and I don't like that word because it sounds like we're putting down a sick dog or something. Um, you know, th they're not going to be unilaterally deciding that the patient is to be put down. You know, this has to be patient initiated. And I think opponents of this bill as well, and there are many palliative care physicians among them, I think take a, an either or view of this. I don't think that the legalization of medical assistance in dying um, and good palliative care are mutually exclusive. But, but we know, for example, that there are certain things that people feel at the end of life that cannot be dealt with by palliative care. We're not just talking about physical pain. We're talking mm. about the physical, uh, sorry, the, the psychological and existential anguish of having to face your own death day after day, the loss of control, the, the situation where you have to see your family suffering with seeing you die, 
those things, as good as palliative care is, those things generally are beyond the reach of palliative care. Right. And I think I just want to mention that's a really I think that's a really good point that actually doesn't come up often at all. What you've just mentioned, um, the idea that there are these things that power care is not actually going to reach because in reality, the physical symptoms are actually managed almost always quite well with appropriate power care. But actually, it's about all the other components of um, of well, the suffering. I, I agree that they they might have limitations in dealing with what art termed the existential distress that might also be at play. But I think just to be fair to the palliative care institution, they, they would definitely see themselves as fairly holistic uh, in that they don't just deal with physical symptoms. They also deal with the families and with the psychological uh, ramifications of the situation as well. Now, it may be that, they, that it's never um, you know, to a hundred percent satisfaction, maybe that's just impossible, but I, I think they would see themselves as tackling all of those things. It may be the existential one where they, they really are just not going to have that much impact because facts are stubborn, right? And if the patient's dying, the patient's dying, and that might lead to an existential crisis, which no matter how much you know, well, I, I shouldn't say, I was going to say no matter how many drugs, but actually there's a few drugs that could actually deal with the existential crisis as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to imply that palliative care doesn't deal with the sort of the psychological and spiritual issues of, of end of life care, because they absolutely do. But I think that there will be a subset of people for whom um, there's there there we will exhaust what palliative care has to offer people who are suffering from that existential pain of having to face their own mortality day after day after day for six months um and so you know unfortunately we can't put people on an existential pump uh like we can put them on a morphine pump or other pumps and if you look at international data if you look at you know, places where medical assistance in dying has been legal for some period of time, it seems as though, at least in my reading of the data, that it's not physical pain that makes most people want to end their life. It is the loss of control. It is the, the unending fear of the, one's own dem demise. And it's, it's seeing loved ones suffer as you suffer. So, I think it's not, we're not talking so much about physical symptoms as symptoms that are notoriously difficult for medicine, traditional Western medicine to deal with. Hmm. I want to talk about the data a little bit more actually, because I think that's pretty interesting in terms of number one, what the data does show. And also number two, how, um, how transferable are the results from the international data and how, how close do we expect it's going to be in New Zealand, I've seen a lot of places say that, um, uh, where is it? Uh, I think it's in Canada, uh, the studies there are probably gonna be the most transferable is what I've sort of been seeing. Um, and it's only around 0.4 or 0.5% of the total mortality that um, is via medical assistance um, in death. And 
one of the arguments, there was even an article in the news about this was, well, in New Zealand, if this passes with the current disparities and inequities and all of that sort of stuff in the specific type of demographic that New Zealand serves, is that actually going to really increase disparities in terms of, for example, cultural pressure on burden on families, um, level of sort of education around that different prioritization or values or um, different access to healthcare leading to increased situations where this becomes more of a you know, option or something is um, one of the sort of areas where this could potentially lead us even, you know, worse down the dis disparity gap path. What do you um, both think about that side? Well, I mean, I, I haven't thought much about the, how this would be utilized or administered in disparate ways. I can, I can sort of imagine like with, from the point of view of, access to healthcare, that there would be disparities. And if I had to guess, I would say the same groups that, you know, that uh, suffer less access to services for other things, other services are going to equally, you know, in the same way, they're going to suffer less access to this as an option. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know enough about the cultural differences to know where the pressures or the coercions that people are worried about, how they would play out differently in different cultures. Yeah, I think, again, I don't see this as an either or situation. I think that disparity in healthcare is a really intractable and very important problem for us to address. But let's say we had a new fancy monoclonal antibody that could be used to treat breast cancer, for example, we would never consider saying we will not allow people to have that because there will be a disparity between those who receive it and those who don't. We say that's an advancement in the care, potential care of patients. We will use that as we need to. I don't see this as any different. Yes, there may be disparities, but the answer to that is to not disallow medical assistance in dying. It's to even more stringently address medical inequality. So I don't think we should deny people what I see as a potentially effective treatment for end of life suffering because of the problem of disparity. We should just deal with the disparity. Mm. Mm. And um, I, I, I think the comparison there with that monoclonal antibody, by the way, which, uh, you know, is a common type of treatment for a lot of diseases, actually, um, is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a comparison that I think people wouldn't often make because euthanasia or end of life or assistance in dying often wouldn't be seen as a, I guess, People, I don't think people often would think of it as a, you know, a management plan, a treatment sort of option, but in that we, yes, we are still actually treating the patient's suffering. Um, there's, a, there's a question mark around how this will actually come into place if it does go ahead in terms of who actually will end up administering it and what, where will it sort of fall? I mean, is it going to become a public, uh, a public service, a governmentally, you know, funded public service? Is it going to become privatized? And uh, um, if so, what will be the sort of implications on that? Do you have any thoughts in terms of how, if it does come into play, it would actually look like? 
Um, I don't, do you know, Art? I mean, I don't know if, I, I don't know anything about how it's going to come into play here in New Zealand. Um, I mean, I don't know any specifics, but from what I've read, the presumption is that it will be, it will be part of government funded healthcare, the way other treatments are. And I personally, again, I know that there would be many who would disagree with me, but I, I look at this as a, a treatment for end of life suffering. Uh, and, and I believe that it should be approached in the same way uh, as any other end of life care. And, and Justin, you mentioned the private system. Mm. The, the, the thing, I, and I just wanna mention this, nobody is railing against the private system and all the ways that that exacerbates inequalities of care, right? Nobody is saying this is really bad idea that we've got a, a private system that really caters to people who can afford insurance. Nobody's, you know, it's, it's funny how we pick and choose when we become outraged about healthcare disparities. The, the other thing that I, that came up in my mind when you mentioned the private system is we have, we have to figure out a way of, funding this in some way. People are not going to do work for free in general terms, but we also don't want this to be in any way getting close to a moneymaker, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we, this has to be a public service. I think I'm not going to design, you know, the funding model for them, but I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it out loud as I go. But my sense is that it has to be a public service where people who are committed uh, to this kind of work are, are, are just going to become engaged in it. Uh, we don't want it too incentivized by money. And we also don't want to create a situation where no one does it because it's not compensated at all. So that's a tricky one. You know, I, I'm not sure what the solution is there, but it definitely should not get into the private sector uh, without regulation. Mm. Yeah. I don't think we want a fee for service system where you get paid the more medical assistance in dying that you provide, uh, the wealthier you become. That's not a good system. But, but, but on that note, you know, the, my, as I mentioned before, my end of one experience with this was in Canada with a, a, friend, a, a friend of mine who was a classmate of mine in medical school, and he is a provider. I believe that you have to become a registered provider. This is one of the things that we'll, I'm sure, discover with Stephanie Green when we speak to her um, in, in a couple of weeks. And that is part of the bill here in New Zealand as well. I mean, there will be a separate registry for people who are allowed to, to provide this service. Right. And maybe there's some vetting there. I, I, I don't know, but, um, the, uh, the, the entire medical system, even though Canada is a single payer system where the government funds every service, every healthcare service available period, it is also a fee-for-service system by and large. And so when I assess a patient in a clinic or in the hospital, uh, it, it is that work that gets paid. I submit the gov to the government that I've done that work and that gets paid. So it's, it's a funny combination. It's a private sort of pay system in the sense that you get paid for what you do uh, by the government and, it, and it's universal healthcare. So it's a funny sort of combination of things. And in the same way that any other thing is paid fee for service, so is made medical assistance in dying. And so, again, you know, I, I don't think it's terribly lucrative, uh, and maybe that's where the where the balance is has to be met. Mm. 
So I, I think, uh, and uh, uh, you're probably right at the very beginning of this in terms of um, providing that balanced view. So I mean, I'm, I'm personally in support of it as well, um, especially because a lot of the gaping loopholes and issues with the first iterations have been uh, amended since uh, in its current form. Um, and from the way that I am looking at it, I feel like if the 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 almost um, either like religious or value argument about whether it is or is not right to take a life or end a life if that part is removed which i'm not saying should be removed but i'm just saying if that's not considered then in all the other areas in terms of just sort of saying whether it's medical ethically justifiable whether it overall does more good than harm whether it's logistically viable whether the data shows that it would work from all those other points i do feel like it does tip in favor trying to look at it from as objectively as possible is that kind of the way that you sort of see this as well or is there is there sort of an area that i'm missing because i have had to try to um to try to prepare for this i've tried to talk to people that were sort of opposing it and the reasons for opposing it were because of the things that i mentioned before in terms of um, power care especially and another one in terms of power care funding um and we had a recent um discussion with a politician around this as well who said that well that's really not how funding works just because it comes into play it doesn't actually take away funding from Palkia. Um, in fact, it probably means that because it's a separate item on the work list, there's going to be more funding dedicated to this, so it becomes its own separate sort of agenda. So I'm kind of getting the feeling that all of these counter arguments have been like recounted pretty sufficiently, but I don't want to miss it, miss anything. Is there like another part of this that I'm, I'm tragically missing in this argument and really doing a disservice for all the people that are well, yeah, you, you're saying you, you don't want to straw man the argument. You want to get the yeah. Best. I want to. I want to. So I've really tried my best to look at it from both sides. And then when I heard some of the counter arguments, I was like, you know, that's a really good point. Especially when I heard about, you know, it could really detriment existing power care, which is you know kind of chronically underfunded, as is a lot of things. But you know, I thought, okay, well, I mean, that's definitely not going to be good. Could that potentially do more harm? And then trying to look into that and thinking, well, it's probably not what's going to happen anyway. So that argument sort of doesn't hold up anymore and i'm sort of struggling to find very legitimate counter arguments outside of just the ending life is wrong mm. premise which i but, think is more of a individual moral decision that needs to be made one of the i think legitimate points and questions you know that that i had as well was around the concept of depression i mean we, we sort of part along this question of anyone who is sane and by sane i mean you know they're not suffering from some serious mental illness uh, of the various many types that we can think of wants to live that's the sort of the baseline assumption and depression is not a rule out or it's not an exclusionary factor in this decision. That's one thing that they've brought up quite, quite explicitly. Um, they've also said, of course, that depression can't be the only reason that someone wants to end their life. It probably wouldn't meet the six-month uh, prognosis criteria anyway. Um, but 
that I think that's been one of the worries. And I think one of the, it's not, I, I don't think, I don't see it as a counter argument to do, to supporting assisted dying, but I do see it as a potentially thorny practical uh, logistical point that needs to be addressed, which is how do you ensure that you're not uh, placating someone who is simply just depressed? But as I said, I, you know, I don't think it would meet the, the prognosis criteria of six months, and it can't be the only thing wrong with them. They actually have to have a serious life-limiting disease. I am wondering about the mental illness thing because I think when I was reading it if you do have a diagnosed mental illness uh, it does exclude you however well, that, that would be okay I mean I, I don't know the specifics Justin I, that would be okay from my perspective because that hmm. for me that would be the one worry you know here you are making this very monumental decision we have to ensure that it's coming from a sane place and not from a, I guess, a deranged place. And I mean, I don't mean deranged in a derogatory way. I'm just may, mean, you know, is your mind and your emotions working within the spectrum of normal, uh, whatever that means, you know, um, and that's where the, the decision's coming from. I think the, the going on from that is that there's no requirement for the patient, however, to be screened if they do suffer from a mental illness. And I think that's a, I think that is actually one of the points that is brought up often about the counter argument is that if it's important that they don't, you know, suffer and that's sort of influencing them, there isn't actually a need for a psychiatric assessment. However, it can be asked, but it's not required. Does it change anything for you from your point of view? Can I, can I just reframe this again as a medical treatment, right? So, um, you would not find many people in New Zealand who would argue that the individual does not have the right to refuse life prolonging treatment, right? We all generally agree with that. Mm. We say we are all autonomous beings. The unit of decision-making here in New Zealand and in most Western civilizations, Western cultures is that the individual has the right to refuse life prolonging treatments. I don't know where we have difficulty making the, 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 the leap to say, um, then therefore, the, if we look at this as a medical treatment, um, I don't know, we allow people with mental health issues, a history of mental health with even depression to decide to not pursue life-preserving treatment as long as they are they as long as they have capacity to make that decision right so, so i mean being i think depressed a... being depressed does not mean you are incapable of making a rational thoughtful decision no that that's true but that's that's an that that's the most important distinction having a diagnosis of a mental illness like depression which you know could potentially be associated with an understandable uh, in the context of a terminal illness um, is not the same as losing your capacity to make the decision. But I will point out that when you do lose your capacity or when, when you are felt to have lost your capacity because of the mental illness that you have, 
we do take away the right to we refuse and, and life-saving If you treatment. lack capacity to make this decision, you will not be allowed to make it. Exactly. And again, physicians do this all the time. We are always making assessments of people's uh, capacity to make decisions. It's usually when they disagree with us, by the way. It's usually when they aren't doing something that we think they should do, we question their capacity. But um, we, we are not you know, we are experienced in that process. And this bill as well would take away the right to participate in medical assistance in dying if you lack capacity. So again, I think that safeguard is in there. And I think if you are competent to, de to decline, for example, chemotherapy, you, to me, are competent to then decide that you want to end your life because you're suffering uh, is too much relative to the hope that you hold for your life. If mm -hmm. I can just give you a little anecdote, I think I've, I've mentioned this to you before, Art, which I had a patient who had widely metastatic and, and very advanced pancreatic cancer, as it, as it turns out. And I met him on a couple of occasions because he kept on coming back to the hospital for acidic taps. That's when you, um, it's a procedure where you put a needle into the abdomen and you remove fluid that's accumulated and becomes uncomfortable. And this is as a result of the, uh, the, the spread cancer in his abdomen. Um, he had expressed, uh, you know, extreme distress. You know, he's always in pain, of course. He had expressed extreme distress about this um, diagnosis and the effect it was having on him that he felt alone. All of his family was in Christchurch, uh, and he was feeling very uh, unsure about what the future and whether his family was going to come up and look after him or whether he was going to travel down and, and feel like a burden to them. And so he was sorting all of that out on his own. And on the last uh, admission, we supplied him, he was under the care of the palliative care service, we supplied him with enough morphine to last him for the week based on the amount that he was using to control his pain. Well, this man decided to take all of the morphine at once in an attempt to end his life. And just to say, his prognosis would have been, in our estimation, less than a month. And he almost made it, almost succeeded in ending his life, but his friends show up at his house to visit him. They see this, this tableau of him dying in his, in his bed and they panic and they call the ambulance and the ambulance comes, they rush in and they see what's happened and they give him the antidote, Narcan, to reverse the effects of the morphine. Um, so, and they bring him into the hospital because, quote unquote, God forbid that he end his life of his own accord, you know, a few minutes before it was going to end anyway by the natural history. That was sort of the, the, the way that we were seeing it. But they bring him back into the hospital and he is in terrible suffering now because of the counteraction of the, of the morphine with the, Nar with the Narcan. And then he then proceeds to die four days later, a terrible, painful, alone death in a, in a hospital, uh, which, you know, was not what he had planned. Mm. And we just thought, 
the ironic bit, I mean, it's just one of the ironies, but one was that we actually, we prescribed the exact same amount of morphine for the week that it was going to take for him to die, but he decided to take all of the same dose of morphine in one go so that he didn't have to endure a week of suffering. But no, no, we had to make him endure the week of suffering. So to me, that just brought up so many, I mean, that, that would have been a good case if he had mm. ex- been able to express to us, I'm done, you know, let's, let's just end this thing. That would have been a pretty clear cut case for me. Yeah. And I, I guess that's like the perfect case where most people would say, okay, well, in that situation, there's, that would be sort of supported. Um, I remember actually seeing um, the billboards that are kind of put up while you're driving along. Um, and I don't think I actually brought up this uh, other point, which was the idea of um, pressure and coercion, which is currently not needing to be assessed. Uh, I, I do think that that is um, an issue that it's not needing to be assessed. I think in reality, most decent enough doctors would really think about that and and as almost a common sense check that as we do with like EPOA decisions or anything like that. Um, but I guess not having it as a legal requirement does open up just a little bit like the what if um, it does happen sort of thing. What's your view on that? Well, look, even though it's, it, it's you know, we don't assess every patient um, who makes a decision about their care to decide whether or not they are coerced, right? There's no legal requirement to do that, but there is a moral and ethical requirement that most physicians follow to, you know, and we have our antennae that kind of get stimulated if we think that there is some undue pressure that people are putting on a patient when they make a decision. I, I, I don't think, again, it's not a foolproof process, but by and large, we do this on a daily basis, right? If somebody decides not to have chemotherapy, we don't call in you know, all of their family and interview them individually about how they feel about it. We might take the patient aside away from their family and say, look, I'm worried that this is not your decision. Can you talk to me about that? There are ways to do this that we are morally and ethically bound to do and that I believe most people who would be engaged in medical assistance in dying would be sensitive to. So I don't think having a legal requirement to do this uh, is, is, is practical or even necessary. And again, we don't do it for medical treatment. And, and if, you know, if we look at this as a medical treatment rather than assisted suicide you know it's that it's the the fact that this is death that makes it so difficult for us because in general western cultures don't deal with death very well at all right but but, but can i just say that we alien thing we the, the fact that it is death also means that we have to take it very seriously so i mean i wouldn't want to draw a comparison between this decision for this medical treatment, death, compared to some other decision for some other medical treatment, which is not death. Uh, so, and, and, I, and I appreciate, so I just, 
I don't want to trivialize it because it's an important medical decision. So the threshold for finding coercion maybe needs to be lower than for other decisions. Um, but, but remember that we're talking about death now without suffering versus certain death a little bit later with suffering. And so it's not like we're choosing Again, death or no death. If, if I'm diagnosed with, with cancer and I decline chemotherapy, I make a rational decision and I say, no, I don't want chemotherapy. Yeah, you're ending your life earlier. I'm, I'm effectively ending my life earlier than I would likely end it if I took chemotherapy. But there's no legal requirement for you to assess my mental competence. I mean, again, if you don't think I'm competent to make that decision, if you think I lack capacity, it is your moral and ethical and ultimately legal responsibility to explore that possibility. If you think that that decision is not my decision, but is being sort of coerced from me, again, it is your moral, ethical, and ultimately legal responsibility for you to, to deal with that issue. And, and I look at these situations as exactly the same. I don't think that people are generally, and this, this is a slippery slope argument that people make uh, against medical assistance in dying. They say, well, if you start letting people decide that they can end their own life because they've got a terminal illness, well, then what if they're chronically depressed? Or That's a separate argument. And this bill does not allow for people in chronic pain or chronic mental illness to end their lives. Now, there are some places that have gone that extra step uh, and do allow people with chronic mental illness to end their life. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here in New Zealand. We're talking about people who have a very high likelihood of dying as a natural consequence of their incurable disease within a relatively short time frame. You know, I was, I, I just finished reading a, an article that Michelle sent to me. It was written by a woman called Terry Balamak, who's the, well, she was the person who led the legalization of abortion. Uh, and now she's looking for stuff to do because, you know, it's, that's all over. Um, but she wrote an interesting article where she draws a comparison between the abortion question and the end of life question and you know the similarities around it and um you know th they talk about that coercion thing you know michelle was telling me because michelle's involved with abortion work and she was telling me that uh she just this week had a patient who came in for a consultation you know about abortion and the patient herself admitted that she actually was interested in having the baby, but she would never disobey her mother and her mother wants her to have an abortion. Hmm. And Michelle said, no, you know, we need to sort this out, but I can't, I can't say yes uh, because it was clearly there was potentially some coercion happening there. Now this is possibly, I mean, this is a, an, a, an adult woman who can make her own decisions and everyone takes in different factors to make those decisions. In her case, one of them was her mother told her so. Um, so it's, it's a really fuzzy line. I don't know where to draw that line, but uh, there are ways to figure out whether someone is being coerced or not. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought of so many different types of patients that tick those boxes, especially uh, when you were talking about people that just refuse chemotherapy, you know? I think we all know those patients who are very into their... Um, 
herbal, whatever it is, uh, and just will absolutely adamantly refuse, you know, anything that seems a little bit kind of against whatever pseudoscientific belief that they held. And you're, you're literally looking at this person thinking, you know, they definitely have capacity and yet they are certainly going to die. Uh, and it's completely avoidable and they're just going to walk out of here and, and we can't do anything. And I remember, um, a situation where the same patient that I saw leave ended up coming. So I was, I can't remember what service I was in. I saw a patient, they were diagnosed, they'd refused treatment, they left. Um, I, a few months later, uh, was working in hematology and that person was one of the patients there and they were not doing well at all. And they deeply regretted their decision at the time and, uh, all of that sort of thing. And so, I mean, in that situation, you know, we didn't, we didn't check for, yeah, we didn't check for that coercion. We didn't check for the pressure. We didn't check for pretty much any of it outside of just their capacity and we let them walk into their death. And so, I mean, compared to that, I think, um, a really good way that I, I think a lot of people who are voting for, who do have issues with the bill or certain areas with it is that, well, if we don't let the bill pass, and it doesn't come into force, well then when's the next opportunity for something to be in the legislature that we can then start amending, improving, collecting data on, assigning funding to, and slowly making it better, better and better. If we just say, well, because it's not the perfect, perfect version of what it is right now, and then we bar it from entering into practice, then, you know, you know, will we get this chance to actually start looking at it properly and improving it for, you know, the next six, seven, you know, however many cycles. I imagine that these opponents would have some ideas of what things they would want to improve. I mean, if they think- I think a big part is the coercion, you know, the coercion and the pressure. And um, I've heard some people talking about how the data from international studies, you know, it's not transferable because of different demographics and things. And I don't know exactly about that one because I mean, there is a certain point at which no data is really transferable beyond a certain scope. And I think there's probably enough data out there that getting any more doesn't really change anything in terms of how much more transferable it could be instead of just getting data in New Zealand itself, which probably isn't going to happen until the bill is passed in the first place is what I think from that point of view. But I think it was about the coercion and pressure check and um, cooling off period and and you know those were the sort of the main areas that they had issues with, at least the ones that we haven't talked about in more depth. I mean, there is a cooling off period, if that's what you want to call it. I mean, this process cannot be instantaneous. Um, and you need to check with the person when they first request it. They need to be checked with again before they're given uh, whatever they're given to end their life. Um, you know, and look, if there was a, if I could do a blood test, Justin, on you to find out if you've been coerced, well, then I would say maybe we should be doing this test on all of these patients to make 100% certain that they're not coerced. But we all know it's an inexact science. Um, and I, I don't know that even if we mandated it legally, that it would, it would make us do anything different than what we already do because we are morally and ethically bound by, you know, by, by our duty to make sure that people's decisions are their own. Um, and I believe this, this bill also has written into it a mandatory review in three years. So I don't think that this is just the kind of thing where you say, okay, it's a free for all now. Let's just go do it. Let's just start killing everybody, uh, without any kind of review. I think there's a lot of people 
who oppose this, who would like us to believe that this is going to be done without any review, that this is now going to open the floodgates and everybody's going to now want to start killing themselves. But, you know, we have a natural deterrent here because people generally don't want to die. Mm. And, and I think also a natural deterrent is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that I think uh, doctors in general for new things that are coming out, they're usually a bit more on the cautious side of it, to even just medications that are coming out, you know, it's err on the side of sort of caution. So I don't think people are going to be really gun ho about, um, you know, assisting uh, medical assistance and dying when it first comes out for the next three years. I don't think it's going to really go rampantly out of, I think the chances are low that that will happen anyway. Well, I mean, case in point, I don't know, Art, what your plans are, but I strongly support this. I don't think I would do it. Right. I don't think that I would be engaged in that sort of work. It's not that I would be opposed to actually mechanistically doing it, but I don't think that that's what I want my career to be about on a day to day basis. Well, like the option would be open if. Oh, as long as I have, as long as I have good people that I can refer to, if the interest is, is expressed by the patient. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I were earlier in my career, um, you know, this is something that I see as a valuable tool in the armamentarium to, to alleviate people's suffering. Uh, and since that's how I see my role as opposed to the defender from death, uh, the cure of diseases, which I think some of us are under the delusion we are, um, you know, earlier in my career, I, I would potentially consider doing it because I think, I think it fits in with really what our goal should be. But again, we don't, we don't deal with death very well. You know, we see death as the enemy. We see death as something to stave off at all costs. And we don't see it as a part of our natural life cycle, which it is because we're all going to die whether we like to believe it or not, we all will. And so I think that at the, as we approach the end of life, our goal should be to alleviate suffering as we can. Mm. Um, I don't buy the slippery slope argument because as I said, I think there's a natural deterrent to lots of people rushing to have this done. I think we can rationally discuss whether or not we would ever consider extending it to minors or extending it to people with uh, chronic uh, debilitating diseases that don't have a six-month prognosis, but those are discussions that we can have later and we can decide as a society, no, we don't want to go down that route. Um, but I think if we, if we claim to be a society that puts primacy of decision-making with the individual, I don't see a rational way that we can argue that the individual shouldn't, in this circumstance of impending death, be allowed to make a decision to end their life. Mm. Uh, and uh, the way that you sort of talked about it reminded me of uh, something that I heard years ago, actually, about this. I think it was during a grand round at the hospital when one of the um, <clears throat> end-of-life physicians in the Netherlands came to give a talk on. And I can't remember if this was exactly him, but it was along the lines of saying that, you know, we we doctors are not 
saving people we're, we're simply de delaying death no matter what in any situation no matter how old no matter how young because of the fact that mortality is always a hundred percent across a lifetime it's always just delaying death and at a certain point death is so inevitable that delaying death has no purpose anymore and then suddenly doctors have no no more options available to them to do what they think is best for the patient's wishes and suddenly autonomy kind of goes out the window and so it, it didn't really make sense in that point of view and then when i first heard it i think i was I might have still been a student and um, it was really the first time that I actually, it was really the first time that I'd thought of the work of a doctor as being just delaying of death, um, which was momentarily a little bit depressing. Uh, but then once I accepted that, it was, you know what, that actually does make a lot of um, logical sort of sense. Um, but yeah, I think... If you, look at it, if you look at it though, as the job of physician is to provide people as best we can with the longest period that they can have of high quality existence. Now that is really our purview. It's not to keep people alive as long as we possibly can, um, but it is to give them what they consider to be high quality existence, high quality life for as long as, as we can, as long as they want it. Um, and I think if you couch it in those terms, this doesn't seem to be particularly outside of what we try to do all the time. Mm. Um, you know, we offer palliative chemotherapy to people who want it, not with curative intent, but to try to give them as much quality time as they can have if they want it. Um, and we don't seem to get nearly as upset if they don't want it. But when, but when we're talking about actual death, that seems to be something that we have more difficulty wrapping our heads around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've um, really pulled, pulled it apart and um, I, I don't really know what else to um, talk about here rather than just continually beating a, you know, beating the horse or however it goes. Beating a dead horse. <laughs> yeah. There's an irony there. Um, but uh, for people that want to learn more about this, so we've got an interview that we did with a politician, Adriana Christie, um, talking about it from a political point of view, looking at, okay, how do resources actually get distributed? What are the impacts there? And what's the political perspective on this? Um, but if they, you know, if people want to learn a little bit more about this medical assistance and dying, um, uh, and Nick, you will be doing an episode on I Am Reasoning as well. And you've said, uh, was it a, f a few weeks from now, you'll be holding an interview? Is that right? Yeah, well, th this is been great because it's given us a chance also to reflect a bit and talk about it and, and maybe come up with um, some questions that have cropped up, certainly for me. But yeah, we'll be speaking to Dr. Stephanie Green, who is, I believe, the, the head of the Society of Made Providers in Canada, made being medical assistance in dying. And uh, she, she actually came to New Zealand and she um, what, you know, while this referendum was a hot topic and she did quite a few interviews on the news, et cetera. And she obviously has now, what, three or four years experience uh, after the, um, the legislation came into to play in Canada. Mm. So um, people can check that out on uh, I Am Reasoning. I am standing for Internal Medicine Reasoning. And I mean, 
honestly, I say this again and again, but like, if you know about our podcast, but you don't know about I Am Reasoning, I don't know what strange channel you came from because that's a rarity that does not occur. Um, but you can definitely check that out. Um, you can search for them on any good podcast player and on their website, imreason.com or on Facebook or on Instagram, which you guys are on Instagram now. Yes, we are. Thanks to Madison. Thank you for the plug. Appreciate that. <laughs> So uh, thanks uh, both of you for, for, for coming in and being guests again, always a pleasure. Um, interesting discussion, a bit more, I think, heavy this time. Pleasure, thanks for inviting us. Thank you for having us, Justin. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you're listening to us on YouTube, make sure to subscribe if you're into this type of content. And if you leave a like, it really helps with that YouTube algorithm as well, helping our episodes reach more people. So would really appreciate that. And yeah, let us know your thoughts in the comments as well. Send us a message if you've got anything that we haven't talked about. I'm sure there's gonna be people that uh, will have lots to say about this. And you know, I sincerely do apologize if there's an aspect of the argument that we haven't given full attention to. I did try my best. Um, but definitely leave your comments below. But until next time, thanks for watching and we'll see you later. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in to Subcut. If you guys have any suggestions for content, please make sure you send it through. You can get in touch and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or find us on our website at jttmed.com slash subcut. Subcut is a podcast brought to you by JTT. If you or anyone you know is interested in a career in medicine, make sure to get in touch and check us out at jttmed.com.